so we're all the three of us are drinking Jaeger, and then we're just going to go out and start killing postmodernists. Is that the plan? Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mick Inslicht. Say hello, Mickey. Hello. So today we have a special guest joining us, do we not? We do. We do. A very special guest. Uh, we've got none other than Ted Slingerland, who uh, we actually talked about his work uh, a few episodes ago when we talked about vices. And apparently I misfielded Ted. I called him a cultural anthropologist. Yeah. Microaggression. <laughs> microaggression, yeah. <laughs> right. So let me just introduce you properly, and then I can, you know, commit all sorts of microaggressions. Uh, so Ted is... Um, a uh, professor, a distinguished university scholar at the University of British Columbia uh, in the Department of Asian Studies, but he's also an associate member in the Department of Philosophy uh, and Psychology. Uh, Ted got his BA in Asian Languages, his MA in East Asian Languages, and PhD in Religious Studies, all of them uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, at UBC, Ted is the director of the Cultural Evolution of Religion Research Consortium. He's also the co-director for the Center for the Study of Human Evolution, Cognition, and Culture. And Ted's research is super cool. No matter what you're interested, uh, Ted probably has some insightful thing to say about it. Uh, but his specialty is Warring States uh, Chinese Thought, uh, Religious Studies, uh, including uh, the Cognitive Science and Evolution of Religion, Ethics, including Virtue Ethics and Moral Psychology. And uh, I think Evolutionary Psychology plays a, a, a close uh, uh, an important role in, in, in Ted's research. Uh, Ted is the author of five books, including one we'll discuss a little bit uh, at the start of the show called What Science Offers the Humanities. And I say nothing, but uh, Ted will... Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. Ted will disabuse me of that. Um, he uh, has also written uh, a popular press book called Trying Not to Try, uh, which we'll also get into it, uh, in depth. Uh, was quite popular. I read it. I loved it. Um, and just, just I think this month, uh, his fifth book came out uh, called "Mind and Body in Early China: uh, In Early China: Beyond Orientalism um, and the Myth." And finally, uh, Ted is also, I think, about to start writing a book, an entire book, I believe, devoted to intoxication. Yes, and how it's important and uh, really, really important, right? Yeah, so it, it also provides a theoretical framework for why your podcast is so great. So <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know, just because you know, uh, you kissed our ass a little bit, I think we should uh, <laughs> maybe uh, uh, have a shot in celebration of, of you shall. being here. Yeah, we shall. And now I just want to make clear: so I'm going to be drinking Jägermeister. That's right. And you. Uh, I got some wild turkey here. I'm actually, I, I don't like doing shots. So I'm just going to sip this pre-beer. Uh, all right. And, and now I want to just make clear to James Heather specifically that uh, that it was not me who who requested the Jägermeister. It was Ted. So I did it in response to a previous show where you expressed a, a love of Jägermeister. So I actually went out specifically yesterday and bought myself some Jägermeister. Oh, James Heathers is going to die. <laughs> Are you going to drink it right out of the bottle or? I'm going to I'm going to pour it into a very effete looking glass which is the only thing I have to drink out of so 
don't yeah this is not there's no video just can we let's just draw a word picture for our listeners here (laughs) this is like a little like crystal snifter that you should be drinking like fancy brandy out of or whatever this is possibly the nicest glass that anybody has ever used to drink jägermeister out of (laughs) yeah it's gotta be it's historic uh well ted's got class so shall we yeah all right all right cheers cheers sir gross Ah, delicious. Oh, yeah, not the word I would go for. Oh, man. Yeah. So I It's have, memorable, isn't it? It's medicinal. So I do have a theory about Jägermeister. Years and years ago when I was in, in school, I worked in bars and restaurants. And a bartender at one place I worked was convinced that Jägermeister would cure any sickness. And I do have an experience of having colds that are hanging on, just driven out of my system by a few well-timed shots of Jägermeister. So so that's why it has kind of a, a special place in my life, even though I actually, it's objectively not tasty. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it will cure uh disagreeableness it might yeah well all alcohol ethanol will do that for you so yeah because i'm feeling particularly ornery today are you uh, and i'm hoping this will uh, yeah i'm a little aggro today okay because uh, i'm fucking on spending way too much time on twitter and seeing nonsense going on oh dear um yeah but uh, before i before i spew and go crazy uh let's talk about some beers uh and uh so this, you know, our first beverage will, you know, displease uh, some aficionados of drinking. But I believe this second, the beers we're drinking will please aficionados. We're drinking um, uh, an award-winning beer uh, from Belgium called Cantillon. And I am drinking a Creek. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what, uh, what, what fruit is in it. I believe it could be, um, usually it's typically some berries. Uh, and Yoel, you are drinking a, a, a Goose. Uh, so sour beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what do you think? Mm, it's good. It smells crazy. Yeah, this one is, uh, mine is uh, quite tart. Not not sweet at all. It's like dirt and pine needles. But in <laughs> a good go. way. <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> and now, uh, Ted, I, I know we promised we wouldn't make fun of you, but fuck that shit. So you're drinking wine? <laughs> I'm drinking. Is that what you're doing? So in addition to doing my shot of Jaeger out of this effete crystal glass, um, I'm I'm drinking wine. So I'm drinking a, a Spanish white that is a blend, but it's it's mostly um, Grenache Blanc. So, yeah, there you go. I, I don't know go. what you're talking about, but uh, it's white. <laughs> it's white. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, OK, so uh, I feel like I just need to get this out of my system. So I, I'm going to just tell what's going on and we'll see how, how this goes without insulting and going crazy. But um. There was, I guess, a bit of a Twitter dust up uh, in our little corner of Twitter and science, open science Twitter, um, where there is some call uh, by some people, uh, I don't know, to to blackball, to excommunicate uh, a science journalist, uh, uh, Jesse Single. And now, you know, as many of our listeners will know, we had Jesse as a guest. So we are, uh, I guess, have a conflict of interest and biased here. So take all our opinions with a grain of salt and maybe our opinions of him, uh, of what he's claimed to have done is colored by the fact that we, we found him congenial and nice. Um, but, you know, I've seen this now a few times where uh, a number of people have claimed that he is transphobic and he's tr- uh, spreading lies uh, and viciously attacking trans people. Um, 
And of course, that's a claim that I take very seriously. And, and if someone claims that, I mean, I certainly don't want to support anyone who's transphobic or someone who is uh, maliciously trying to hurt uh, a stigmatized community who's, by all accounts, suffering. Um, but there's this kind of rumor out there that he's done all manner of really, really bad things. Um, and at one point, there was a call to, like, why, you know, someone asked, uh, why are scientists associating with him, um, given that he's so clearly transphobic and such a, a bad person who constantly attracts, uh, attacks the, the trans community? Um, and even just me talking about it, I'm getting a bit worked up, I must admit. Uh, and so, again, I'm interested in finding out what the deal is. And I, I asked at one point in this Twitter thread, I was like, well, what, you know, I've heard these rumors, but what's, what's the evidence that he's doing this? Because if, you know, if there's evidence there, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm on board. I'm not going to, I won't talk to him again, or I won't, you know, uh, talk to him at least in a scientific manner. Uh, but, you know, that's a strong claim. So I, I would like evidence for it. And I think me asking for evidence and then UUL coming right afterwards led to this essentially a shitstorm of activity where people were saying, um, we're defending the original claims and, and all manner of stuff happened. So that's just my kind of little brief uh, summary. But what's your take, UL? Well, so I appreciate that people were willing to get into it and to say, like, here's what we think. Uh, he did wrong. Here's the mistakes that we think he made. Here's how we think that um, what he's writing is problematic. I have to say, like, I didn't find any of those kind of specific um, responses to be all that convincing. Um, to me, it seems like he's a journalist who's trying to cover a very contentious area, one in which research is evolving quickly and one in which we just don't know a lot. So a question as simple as, you know, let's say 100 kids come into a clinic with gender dysphoria. What percentage of those kids are eventually going to transition to a gender that doesn't match their birth sex? What percentage is it going to resolve uh, without transition, uh, social or physical? We just don't know those things, right? Like there's just not good data on that. And like everybody... Um, everybody responsible kind of agrees on that. So, you know, in trying to cover that, um, people pointed to places where maybe he got a little ahead of the evidence, um, where he stated things as um, more settled than maybe they were. Uh, but then also, like, he's really shown a willingness to go back to those statements, to correct them. Um, in his later writing, he's much more nuanced about what the facts are. So I just never saw this evidence of bad faith. Um, and I think that by the standards of most science journalists, he's really doing an exemplary job of really trying to dig into these data um, and to do a good job with them. Um, so, so much for, you know, the, uh, the, actual, the specific factual claims. What, what I found interesting about the discussion is that there was definitely um, a feeling that these kind of even asking for substantiation was sort of an illegitimate thing to do. In other words, if a member of the group in question has said, hey, you know, I don't like what this person is doing, that should be enough, right? So we shouldn't have to ask for anything more than that. Um, their viewpoint is enough to say, okay, this person is problematic, right? And that, you know, um, I guess it depends what, what the question is. But to me, when, the, when it's about like specific factual questions of does he cover the research well or not, that's not something where you need to be a member of that group to evaluate that question. Like, yes, you can listen to members of that group who tell you, here's the stuff that we found to be problematic or hurtful or whatever. But then, you know, 
being a member of that group or not, you can make an evaluation of whether those uh, claims seem supported by evidence or not. And I guess what I found to be a little like um, eye-opening is the degree to which people, scientists, were willing to say that evidence doesn't matter. What matters is the opinion of a member of Group X. And that's something that I think opens a big can of worms. Um, and I'm, I guess this is a great place to toss it over to you, Ted, and ask, well, what, what do you think of that kind of general orientation to, to weighing facts or evaluating claims? Yeah. So it's interesting to see this happening in psychology because I took refuge in you guys from the humanities because of this. So it's, um, you know, I move, I hang out mostly these days with psychologists and people who do evolutionary science. And it's, it's largely because of this, this trend of the humanities that's been opposed to evidence, you know, epistemologically relativistic. And it's, it's hard to know where, where science goes with that or where even um, dialogue can go with that, right? So if it's the case that everything has to be shut down as soon as someone agrees, disagrees with it, it's hard to know how you could even have a civil society. <laughs> so I worry it, this whole trend is troubling because it, it seems to me a, a kind of um, liberal version of the anti-intellectualism and anti-evidence that you see in, you know, Trump's America. So um, in in my fields in the humanities, this is this is part of this kind of uh, postmodern relativist position that we're we're socially constructed all the way down. We have no independent access to reality, so we have no evidence isn't really evidence because it's always interpreted through the prism of your experience. And if that's the case, so the position is that we're always kind of imprisoned in these discourses or it's language, it's cultural construction of some kind. We have no direct access to reality. And so then what is left, it seems to me what's left is just assertion or kind of politics. And that's a really disturbing view. I mean, if that maybe if it were true, it would be really depressing. Um, but fortunately, I, I don't think it is true. We we actually um, so the you know my science humanities book is is partly a debunking of this position in the humanities. So um, walking people, you know, if you talk to people in the humanities these days, they'll say, "Oh, nobody's a postmodernist. We don't believe in that stuff anymore." Um, but they are. So um, in the sense of strongly socially constructivists, what like Tubi and Cosmitis call the, the standard social science model, the idea that every aspect of our thought and perception is structured by our culture or our language. If you, so I, I first kind of walk people through the fact that Everyone still believes this in, in the humanities, or at least most people. It's the dominant. It's a position that you don't have to defend in the humanities. So if you want to be evidence-based or talk about evolutionary uh, things or any kind of scientific evidence, you are on the defensive. Um, if you make a really strongly socially constructivist claim, everyone just nods. It's not something you have to defend. And so I 
um, try to document its presence and then talk about the internal incoherence of it. So if that's really the case, then we're all kind of living in our own little solipsistic universes and there's no way to communicate or refer to reality or adjudicate disagreements. And if that's the case, that's really disturbing. <laughs> and if, if it were the case, really, all the only thing that's left is then, I guess, physical force. So it just is a matter, you know, we just need to band together with people we decide to form a coalition with and um, stock up on firearms and Jägermeister and just have it, have it out. Um, I think we've got a good head start on that one. <laughs> yeah. A little army of three here. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um. So, so this has come up uh, in our discussions before. Um, and one thing that I find interesting about this is that there do seem to be areas where it seems to be pretty, ugh, sorry, unproblematic to refer to a certain person's experience as sort of the gold standard. So like, for example, like as a man, I'm never going to know what it's like to give birth to a child. Right. And so I would need to ask somebody who's done that to find out what that's like. Right. And like maybe um, a little further away from that, you're like driving while black. You know, mm -hmm. if you're not a black person or you don't have a lot of black friends, maybe you don't know. Right. Yeah. And so that would be pretty skeptical of a white person who's like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> right. On the other extreme, if we're talking about like interpreting the results of a study, then I would say that your identity group membership is basically irre irrelevant to your your standing to do that. So I guess I'm curious, is there any more rigorous way in which you can distinguish like when standpoint should matter versus when it shouldn't? You should be able to, to defend people who aren't in that identity group why it matters. So, I mean, a good example of, you know, you talk about like, you know, feminist epistemology. Um, there's a, a recently deceased uh, New Zealand philosopher named Annette Beyer, who is one of my heroes. She's an incredible philosopher. And I'm not sure she would identify as a feminist philosopher specifically, but one of her great contribution, I think, was to point out that recent Western philosophy, so I'm talking recent for me as a classicist is last 300 years or so, um, has been dominated by this model of human sociality where humans are pictured as autonomous individuals who kind of meet in a clearing and shake hands and decide to cooperate. <laughs> so, you know, we're all autonomous. We, when we interact with people, it's chosen and it's, and we have clear ground rules, you know, here's our contract that we will agree to abide by. Um, and this is really dominated uh, ethical views, political science, and Byers' point is that this is, you know, this does make sense if you are an elite white landowning male. Uh, she's got, she's a wickedly funny. She she writes like Nietzsche. She's actually got this really a very wonderful sense of sarcasm. So at one point she characterizes recent Western moral philosophers as a pack of um, what does she call them? A pack of uh, uh, Puritan bachelors, clerics, and misogynists, <laughs> whose whose greatest whose greatest worry is that while they're reading the Times in front of the fire, a fellow member of their club will trot upon their gouty toes, and 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 so her point is that you know as a white elite male, that's what life seems like to you. And her point is that, well, you know, it's actually for most people, that's not how life is. So our relationships are not chosen. 
Um, they're not voluntary. When you're a mother, you don't sign a contract with your child and say, well, I agree as long as you don't cry for more than this amount of time, I'll provide you with milk. And um, when you have to take care of elderly parents or, or people who are sick, and all of this burden traditionally is not fallen on, you know, John Stuart Mill or Locke. It's fallen on their, you know, nameless women who are doing all this shit. So her point is that there's a there's an entire dimension and actually a much more important dimension of human social experience that was inaccessible to these men, maybe, or it wasn't something that was salient to them. And so that's why, you know, and you could argue that, okay, this is why you need viewpoints from different people. And she's trying to point out there's this background of trust that's that's behind that's huge. And that it's what's fascinating about her work, I think, is that she's pointing out something that's in plain sight, but that's invisible to a lot of enlightenment thought about human sociality, how trust matters and these kind of dependencies matter. Um, so I think that's the best kind of example of where your specific your specific viewpoint that's different from the dominant viewpoint gives you epistemological access to things that are deeply important and that have been missed but then i think you know step 2 is making that point <laughs> and so you know i'm a white landowning privileged male and yet i read that and i'm like holy shit you're right like this is really these types of relationships are much more important than these these voluntary contractual relationships and so it seems to me that if if it's crucial to the academy that at some point you bring these situated claims into a space that can be communicated to and shared with other human beings other other good intentioned human beings. So people who are open and who are willing to hear other viewpoints and maybe change their minds or maybe realize that they were being uh, parochial. And that's what academia is about. And that ideally is what politics is about. Um, and it's, it's still, I get maybe kind of like that still in Canada, but it's certainly not like that in the United States anymore. So I've, I've so, you know, this this kind of identity epistemology, if it's taken too strongly, is descends into either chaos or fascism. Like, I don't, it's really disturbing. Um, but I think understood plausibly, it's, it's, an, it's an argument for why we need multiple voices, right? Right. So if, if I can, like, uh, kind of summarize a little bit what you just said, which I, I found very persuasive, that is, like, if one problem is when only certain types of people are speaking and, and have a voice and then it's only their perspective that's heard. And what we actually need are multiple perspectives. Um, you know, whether that be, a, you know, a, you know, a, um, gender groups, uh, groups with differing amounts of power, racial groups, political groups. Um, and I think the key, your, your, your second point is that while all these folks have, different perspectives, we also have the capability of empathizing. And if, you know, these various perspectives are communicated to other people, then a reasonable person can, you know, uh, accumulate the evidence and kind of integrate across the different perspectives and, and reach hopefully a wiser conclusion about whatever he or she is, is, is thinking about or talking about. Um, that to me is, is wonderful. That's, that's the way discourse ought to be. That's the way science ought to be, where you've got, you know, competitors, academic competitors who are competing about ideas. 
But what I find distressing, and just to bring it back a tiny bit to the how we started this all out with this um, kind of this, this, for me, distressing view that if some group expresses an opinion, you can't, an opinion about fact, I should say, not just about their feelings. If it's something about if it's if it's an opinion about their feelings, then I agree. That's their feelings. That's legitimate. That's 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 fine. Who am I to question it? But if it's a statement about fact, then sure, I'll listen to the perspective. But as scientists, uh, we should listen to the perspective, but also then reason logically and determine whether the the statement of fact is correct or incorrect. And I think uh, you don't need to have the standpoint of that the person making the claim to to evaluate whether it's it's correct or incorrect so um we could talk about this probably all night um <laughs> we have a ton of other stuff we that we, other we'd love stuff. to ask you about yeah. yeah so much other stuff so um you mentioned uh that you know your background obviously is in the humanities and and your appointment is there but that you spend a lot of time these days hanging out with psychologists so you've sort of migrated over um more to the um the sciences. And as somebody who's, you know, bridged that gap and been in both those worlds, uh, we're really curious to know, like, what you think about what each one is missing from the other. So I guess starting with the humanities, you know, what in your opinion is the just really low hanging fruit? Like, what the could the humanities be learning from the sciences or taking from the sciences that they're currently not? Yeah. So, I mean, at the, the highest level of abstraction, the, the dominant model in the humanities is this really st strong social constructivism. So this idea that we're disembodied beings who are somehow built up by language and culture, and we have no independent access to reality. And that's just empirically false. Like as you guys, cognitive scientists disagree about a lot of stuff, but it's pretty clear that that's not an accurate description of human cognition. And so my, you know, what got me starting to move toward the sciences was discovering cognitive linguistics. So um, first Lakoff and Johnson's work and then Fauconier and Turner, but more importantly, the, the embodied cognition perspective, which in my mind solves this problem we have in the humanities where we, we embrace this kind of um, epistemological relativism, strong social constructivism. But if that's, if that's actually true, it's not clear why we have jobs. Like, why should I get paid? What? Why would it matter that I actually took the time to learn classical Chinese if I want to talk about Confucius? Why couldn't just anybody talk about Confucius, right? <laughs> if there's no evidence and there's no access to to reality, um, it, it's a it's a ultimately kind of self destructive destructive and um, uh, self undermining view. And so the embodied cognition movement is what I first got into. And it gave, you know, how do we understand a text from an ancient culture? Well, because they were homo sapiens and they had bodies like us. They interacted with physical environments like us. Uh, my first way of getting into that was metaphor. So, you know, they use when I when an ancient Chinese writer uses the metaphor of a container and they talk about in and out. How do I know what they're talking about? Because I interact with containers too, and I know about it and out. I walk down paths. I um, deal with objects in various ways. And so the embodied cognition stance, in my mind, gives the humanities an out because it, it shows how uh, human cognition is grounded in the body. 
And then cultural variation can do all kinds of crazy stuff to that, right? So we're, we got these inborn categories, what, what tubing cosmitis call evolutionary Kantianism, right? We've got, we do have these categories that we interpret our experience through, um, but they're common to us as a species, and they're actually shared with, with a lot of other species as well. And that gives us then a kind of common vocabulary, a common set of experiences that we can use to understand other cultures. And then other tools like uh, blending theory and cultural evolutionary theory then give us very coherent stories about how uh, cultural variation happens. So I, you know, I was also worried, so I got really into evolutionary psychology at a certain point, and then I got very worried about this kind of almost swing to the other side where it's like, so my people are all wild-eyed cultural relativists, everyone's different. And then there's this other view that sometimes seems to be saying, well, we're all just Pleistocene hunter-gatherers and we're all basically the same. Uh, you know, and that's wrong, too, because culture is a very powerful force. It, it, it tweaks our, our, our perception at a really basic level. Um, but I feel like the, you know, the combination of embodied cognition and then gene culture co-evolutionary theory gives us at the highest level of abstraction a really empirically plausible story about both how humans share things in common, and therefore why we can understand other cultures, but also a story about where cultural variation comes from. So that's kind of flying really high um, abstraction level. Why, why I think humanists, so my argument that in that book to my colleagues is, you know, this is why we should pay attention to this stuff. Um, so, I want to. I, I want to ask you in a second what you know. So we, you, you, you just addressed why or what uh, the humanities can take from the sciences, and I also want to ask you about what science can take from the humanities. Before I get there, um, what has been the how have your ideas been received by those in the humanities, and, and maybe even to make that a bit more specific, um, how have they received some of your ideas about evolution, uh, which at least from a bird's eye, you know, uh, kind of. Bird's eye view. It seems like, to some extent, it's, uh, uh, evolutionary psych or evolution more general is not not a favored theory in the humanities. But maybe I'm wrong about that. No, you're absolutely right about that. So how was that was received very poorly? <laughs> so it's basically the, the I think the attitude of a lot of my colleagues was okay. You are now dead to us. Like you've got. It. So I wrote this book, What Science Offers the Humanities. So people in my field generally just churn out the series of monographs on whatever area they specialize in. And I decided to write this crazy book about science and humanities. And I think from my colleague's point of view, I might as well have been off playing golf during that period. Like it doesn't count. They don't see the relevance. It's not uh, discipline specific. And there's a lot of hostility to this idea that evolution or science in general would have any relevance to the humanities. So um, it was not, it was not received well, <laughs> and I'm still very much in the minority. Um, and this is why I tend to hang out with you guys more these days. Um, can I ask, can I probe that a little bit? So, I mean, yeah. is, is it like, so I, I hear these, you know, sometimes humanities folks will, they'll take some scientific claim and say, Oh, that's not science. That's like scientism. That's just like, you know, window dressing science. It's not real science. Um, so is that the kind of comments you get or? Yeah. Um, although they think everything's scientism. So 
any kind of empirical claim. So, you know, one of the things I've argued with my colleagues as well, so there's that high-flying claim. Look, we have a new theoretical framework, embodied cognition, kind of evolutionary theory, gene-culture coevolution that can help us talk about cultural commonalities and differences. And then more specifically, I've made the argument that on specific interpretive topics, so like my, you know, my latest book is on mind, mind and body in early China. Um, knowledge about the human mind coming from the empirical sciences can put some boundaries on our interpretative efforts. So, um, you know, the, there are people, the dominant, I think maybe dominant position in my field is that the, the Chinese were mind, body, wholeness. So they saw no difference at all between mind and body. Those categories didn't even occur to them. Um, the the word that's the closest thing to mind, this word xin, heart, mind, um, classical Chinese, is just an organ in the body. It's just like the other organs. Um, dualism was invented by Plato or by the Christians or by Descartes. Um, it's a Western thing, and it's completely alien to Chinese experience. Um, and that really flies in the face of, of what I think is fairly large body of evidence coming out of the cognitive sciences um, that, you know, some form of mind-body dualism is a human universal, you know, um, theory of, it's kicked off by theory of mind. We've got good stories about why theory of mind would have evolved for us. And it comes online quite early. We see it cross-culturally in children as well as adults. And so if my colleagues are right, maybe they're right, but what they're claiming is that the early Chinese were a completely different type of homo sapiens than the ones we see running around these days. Um, and that's a strong claim. So one of the things I'm arguing is that the knowledge of, about human cognition can change, can put some, can at least change the burden of proof when we're making an interpretive claim. And that's where, when I bring in the cognitive science evidence, people just say, oh, you're just being scientistic. You know, why would a study tell us anything more than me sitting in my office thinking about it? <laughs> I don't know, re reading books and thinking about it. Um, so this evidence, man, evidence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we care about evidence. So, I mean, humanities, people care about evidence, which is ironic because, you know, it's ironic. You know, Foucault, if you take Foucault seriously, all facts are constructed, right? They're all just products of dominant discourses, all about politics. But whenever anyone questioned his history, because he was actually a very good historian, he was a rigorous, careful historian. Um, whenever anyone questioned his empir essentially empirical claims about history, he got really pissed off. <laughs> it's like, well, dude, it's all constructed. Why would you care? <laughs> so also hypocritical. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, uh, I feel you haven't made a strong claim for what you know uh, for what the humanities will offer sciences, but I I, I know that I, I I'm being facetious here. Yes. But so so what do you think? You know what? How do we get you know get off our high horse and 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 start you know uh, interacting with folks like you? Like what what's in it for us? Well, yeah. What are we What are we missing out? So you know so I was hanging out with all these social constructivists. I started getting into science. I moved to UBC and was hanging out mostly with social psychologists. And it was like, at first I thought it was awesome. Started going to SPSP. There were studies and people had evidence and they, they, they believed in reality. <laughs> I was like, wow, you guys believe in reality. This is awesome. Uh, statistics. 
And so it was very heady in my first probably year or so. Um, but then as I spent more time with you guys and got to see in more detail how the sausages were made, um, I started to, the scales fell from my eyes a little bit. I, I realized, oh, you know, this is, I have to actually argue the other direction as well, because um, I, came, I came to see that there really is a problem and let's just talk about social psychology. Um, there's a real problem in social psychology where you're addressing, you're studying topics that have been studied by humanities scholars for a super long time. And yet you know absolutely nothing about the scholarship in these areas. And so even to get more specific, let's just talk about, um, you know, psychology of religion stuff. Um so my people, where I come from, are obsessed with language. So everything's incommensurable. I'll write, you know, we'll write articles on the nuances of this particular character and grammatical form. Um, the, the other extreme is social psychologists who apparently believe that English is the only language in the universe and that, you know, it cuts up un the universe at its joints perfectly. And so every English word to just be a valid scientific category, <laughs> it's just like, dudes, <laughs> that's just so not right. And it really messes up, um, some of your empirical work. So I, you know, when, when I started started going to SPSP and I'd hear talks about where people were presenting cross-cultural data and they said, you know, we, well, we did these surveys or we had these primes and um, we did it all over the world. And I would, at the end, I would raise my hand and I'd be like, well, how did you translate God into Chinese? And the response I would get was, uh, I don't, I don't know, grad student did it. <laughs> it's like I don't know. It's and you'd read the articles, and in the in the supplementary materials, I'd find out like what computer you ran the stats on, and you know what temperature the room was when you were interviewing people. And I would never get the fucking questionnaires in Chinese. It's like it, because it was, and that's significant, right? It's viewed as such a non-issue that it doesn't even occur to social psychologists that we should have the original languages of these questionnaires in our supplementary materials. And it's, I think it is kind of based on this idea, there's just a lack of knowledge about the world, <laughs> that there are different cultures out there, that things have varied over time. Um, and the, the typical response I get is, oh, well, we back translated it and it worked fine. Um, and back translation is bullshit. Um, you can, you know, you have these dictionary equivalences that get established. So, for instance, you know, religion and China, you want to translate God. It's any dictionary, English, Chinese dictionary is going to tell you Shangdi. That's how you translate God into Mandarin Chinese. Um, and so you'll do that. You'll get a perfect back translation. Um, the problem is there really is there is no word for God in Chinese. There's no word in classical Chinese that really works for God. Um, they picked Shangdi at a certain point because that's how uh, the Protestant God was translated. So when Protestants went to China and they wanted to translate the Bible, they were like, okay, how do we translate God? We're going to pick Shangdi, which is a deity in the early Zhou and um, Chang dynasties. Um, the, the Catholics had a different translation. They said uh, they decided to do Tianzhu, so uh, kind of the heavenly ruler. Um, and so if you go to China and you ask people, do you believe in Shangdi? There's a lot of, there's so many problems with this. So do you believe in Shangdi? Um, first of all, 
depending on their background, but they, they, they may interpret that as meaning, do you believe in the Protestant God? And they say no. And then the researchers come back and they say, the Chinese are atheists. <laughs> it's just like, no, they just, they're not fucking Protestants. So the other thing that I find really interesting is you're making this critique from the standpoint of like a, a humanities person. We also have been hearing a lot from psychometricians recently about how we just don't do enough validation of our measures. Yeah. Um, and so one thing you could do is to say, statistically, does this thing look like it measures the same thing across different groups? So that could be nationality, that could be gender, that could be age, whatever. Um, we just don't do those sorts of analyses routinely, but we should. Yeah. And there's some kind of shocking stuff looking at like, how often do researchers report validity information for the measures that they're using um, and it, it's just like really, really thin on the ground. And the attitude seems to have been like, well, P less than 0.05. So I guess it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, partly this is a product of your training. So I do, you know, what I've noticed is that, you know, social psychologists get trained to run studies, right? And there's a strong uh, pressure to publish and publish and publish and get results. And so it's not rewarded to, to be thoughtful and to spend time really validating your measures or making sure your translations are culturally appropriate is not rewarded. And and it seems like with the at least the way the profession is set up right now, it might even be professionally suicidal if you were a junior person. Yeah, I would say it's really disincentivized because it slows you down. Yeah, it right? slows you down. Like you're um, less productive that way in the sense of publishing fewer papers. Yeah. Um, and the reviewers and readers, for the most part, aren't going to call you They're out. They're not going to call you out. Court. They're not going to call you out on that. So um, until that starts to get called out, it's not going to be incentivized in your field. But the, so the positive thing for me, so my so a lot of my colleagues in the humanities said, well, why did you write what science offers humanities? Why didn't you write the other way around? Um, and it's partly because I felt like the first case is harder to make because humanities people are not evidence bound. And, and so as much as I was horrified, once I got to see how you guys really did your work, <laughs> I have been gratified by the fact that you are at the end of the day, you're scientists and you want to get it right. And my experience has been that when I critique people, they respond immediately. So I one this talk conference in Boston, I they were doing this kind of survey stuff and their survey, they finally dug it up and it was terrible translation. And they actually came to my hotel at 10 p.m. that night and bought me drinks in the hotel bar and had me go through their whole questionnaire and they changed it and they reran it because they wanted to they wanted to get it right. And so I do feel like it's a more gratifying case to make with you people because you at the end of the day you know you want to you want to get it right you, you believe in reality you believe that evidence should be good um and so this doing it this direction like arguing to scientists about why they need to engage with the humanities is, is actually a much easier case to make Child, hip hop. And this especially goes out to Gil Scott Heron, 
friend, living legend, and proto-rapper who wrote, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Much respect. Your revolution will not happen between these thighs. Your revolution will not happen between these thighs. Your revolution will not happen between these thighs. The real revolution ain't about booty size, the Versace's you buys, or the Lexus you drives. And though we've lost Biggie Smalls, you're notorious baby, your notorious revolution will never allow you to lace no lyrical douche in my bush. Your revolution will not be you killing me softly with Fuji. Your revolution ain't gonna, revolution knock, ain't gonna knock me up without no ring and produce little future MCs. Because that revolution will not happen between these thighs. Your revolution will not find me in the backseat of a Jeep with LL, hard as hell, you know, doing it and doing it and doing it well. You know. And we're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So the easiest way is probably on Twitter, where we're at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us, you can DM us. Our DMs are open. So whether we follow you or not, uh, we'll get that DM. If you're more of an email person, you can reach us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can listen to our back catalog of episodes as well. Now, uh, with that, um, I'm going to give it over to Mickey, who's going to tell you, what are we drinking? Yes. So we're continuing with our uh, Belgian theme. And I you know, I forgot to mention this at the top of the show, but uh, these are gifts from, from, listener, uh, from listeners. Uh, in fact, uh, Caitlin Werner, who is a graduate student at uh, Carleton University in Ottawa, uh, she gave us so much beer that we have enough for two episodes. So this is a continuation of uh, her donation. And as an aside, uh, I believe it was last episode we ran this silly contest to see who could uh, burn me the best on online. And not that many people, uh, you know, insulted me. I, I appreciate the few that did. They were all pretty good. Um, but Caitlin happened to be the best one, I thought. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and send her that... Uh, roll of toilet paper with my face on it. Caitlin, you know, uh, I feel it's, it, it's, uh, it's wonderful that you want it because you, you deserve it, uh, cause of the good insult, but also you, you know, you were in Belgium and, and went to a great beer place to find us delicious beer. So, uh, what UL is drinking is a, uh, Mort Subite, a Creek Lambic, uh, from, uh, a very old brewer from, uh, Belgium. And what I'm drinking, uh, is a Timmermans Oud Geuse. Uh, so we kind of switched up. So I had the uh, the Lambic last time, and uh, now you've got it. And then same thing with the goods, switching it up. And uh, Ted, you are still I'm, drinking. I'm still drinking the the white Grenache blend from Spain. Right. Um, which uh, you know, this is a beer show, Ted. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm okay. So I think we're we're going to switch gears a little bit uh, from uh, one of your books, which was, of course, on the, you know, the what the humanities can offer the sciences and what sciences can offer the humanities. And um, we want to talk about a, a popular book that you wrote uh, called "Trying Not to Try," and this is about the, um, is it Confucian or or, or Taoist? Uh, notion of Wu Wei, which is, uh, I think, kind of roughly you know, translated as spontaneity. So, and I'm sure that's not correctly translated. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what your, what your book is about? Yeah. So, um, so this idea of Wu Wei uh, literally means not doing or not trying, but I translate it as effortless action. So it, it refers to the state 
where you are, you have a sense of lack of effort. So you feel like you're not doing anything. You lose a sense of self-consciousness. So you're not conscious of yourself as an agent. You're absorbed in what you're doing and you're incredibly efficacious. So if you're doing some physical tasks, you're very successful. Um, it's also social for the early Chinese. So if you're in a social situation, you're very successful when you're in a state of wu-wei. Um, so it's a bit like you know being in the zone for an athlete or uh, this idea of, it's similar in some ways to the idea of you know, Csikszentmihalyi's idea of flow, um, but importantly different. I, I, we can talk about that if you, you care about the differences, but it's similar phenomenologically to the idea of flow. Um, so it's about that concept, and then another early Chinese concept that unfortunately in modern Mandarins pronounced duh, uh, but it I duh duh, you know, duh. Um, it I translated it as something like charismatic power or charisma. So basically, if you're in for the early Chinese, if you're in a state of way, you get this power duh. Uh, and this allows you, if you're a Confucian ruler, it allows you to attract people to you without you having to try. They just want to follow you. If you're a Taoist, depends on what kind of Taoist you are, but um, you know, it allows you to move effectively among people and kind of cure them of their hangups and they like you and they like each other and they get more natural. So it's this kind of social charisma you get when you're in a state of wu-wei. And so part of the book is arguing that uh, this ideal of spontaneity is an important corrective to Western notions of constant striving. So one of the basic points is that there are, you know, we have this idea in the West that, you know, you don't succeed, we'll try, try again, right? So let's, let's send our kids to cram school, let's study. My students, you know, if they're having trouble with a paper, they pull all nighters and they just keep working at it. They sit in front of the computers. One of the insights I think we get from, from way is this, the idea that there are certain goals in life that can't be pursued directly. So there are certain goals in life where effort is actually counterproductive. So things like creativity, if you need a creative breakthrough, sometimes grinding away is actually preventing you from making that breakthrough. Um, charisma, so social charisma. If you're trying to impress somebody on a date or in a job interview, you're going to look like a dick. Right? <laughs> so it's not going to work. Um, if you uh, you want to have fun, so fun. You know, there's nothing worse than going to a party where the host is like, "Oh, let's come on, everyone, let's have fun." like oh man i gotta go home um, this is why so, my parties suck yes this is why your parties suck so there's a so it's pointing out that there's limits to trying there are actually a lot of important goals in life that can only be achieved indirectly so that's one theme uh a, a related theme is that there's a paradox involved if you if something you want something that you can only attain indirectly, there's a paradox involved. And this is a, my first academic monograph was about what I called the paradox of wu-wei in early Chinese thought. So I thought it was driving the philosophizing in early China. And it's basically the problem of how you, how to, can you try not to try? So you know that, so Mickey, you're throwing a party and you want people to have fun, but you've read my book and you know that if you tell people to have fun, they're gonna go home. So fun needs to happen naturally. 
but how do cannabis? You... <laughs> yeah, so, so well, that's well, that gets us into intoxicant use. So that's intoxicants are a good short circuit for this. So the the basic so part of the argument in the book is that this is a real paradox. It's and it's a real paradox because of the structure of the mind, where um, you know it's like. Dan Wagner stuff on you know, don't think of a, a white whatever it was white horse white elephant don't think of white bear don't think of this thing you think of it right so the the problem with with being trying to be spontaneous is that the part of your mind that you're engaging is actually the part you need to shut down so it's directly paradoxical so part of the argument is that this is a real paradox and that cognitive science can explain why it's a paradox because the part you're activating is the part you want to shut down. Um, this, and then there's the issue of, okay, so it's a real paradox, so what do you do? <laughs> and then I think that the Chinese strategies are actually fairly helpful. So there are all various ways in which you can, if you tell people to have fun, into not thinking about not trying, and therefore really not try. And, and the different schools of early Chinese thought kind of fall in the spectrum varying from try the Confucian, the standard Confucian strategy is try really hard and then it will become internalized and you'll at some point forget about it and then it'll be natural. To Lao Tzu, this one Taoist thinker who says, stop trying completely and just undo all your education and be like the uncarved block and that's how you have to be away. Um, and, and none of them is, that sounds like the dude from the big Lebowski. It's, it actually, it, it is the dude. <laughs> so he is basically the Taoist, um, sage. So none of these, um, strategies is fail safe because it is a real paradox. And that was a problem. So random house, um, initially marketed the book as a self-help book, which I told them it was a really bad idea. I was like, do not, because there's no answer. The end of the book is like, there's no answer. It's a real paradox. And people were pissed off. Exactly what I predicted happened, where people bought it thinking that there'd be like 10 steps to being the dude or Zen master. And at the end, I'm like, it's a real paradox. There's no answer. People were it's like, oh, I'm paradox, a paradox. <laughs> it's just white Russians, man. <laughs> it's just white Russians. So one of the strategies I talk about is, you know, so you got to you got to downregulate your prefrontal cortex. And there are ways you can do that through meditation, um, and there are ways you can do that chemically. And so, and certainly the early Chinese were using chemical methods as well. Um, so there are various strategies for getting around this paradox, but it is a real problem. Um, it's a problem when you realize that the only way to be successful is to relax, you still have this problem. And the fact, you know, the other reason it's clear it's a paradox is that professional athletes are acutely aware of this problem. And professional performers of any kind. And these people, especially professional athletes, have millions of dollars to spend on sports psychologists. And yet it's still the case that elite tennis players, for instance, choke. You know, they start thinking too much, their serve starts to not work, and they can't get out of their heads. And so if there were a solution, these guys would have the solution because they've got a lot of money. There's a lot at stake, and they don't. So it is a real paradox, but having access to Various workaround strategies, I argue, is helpful. Um, so that's part of the book. And then the other part of the book is talking about this connection between spontaneity and charisma. And the early Chinese story is a religious one. So you, if you're in Wei, you're doing heaven's will. So heaven's a kind of anthropomorphic being. 
and it then gives you the, it gives you this charismatic power so you'll be successful. And what I'm arguing is that you can tell a naturalistic version of the connection, which is that human beings are very worried about, there's a lot of human relationships that are based on trust. So this is the net buyer stuff, right? A lot of what we do and the way we cooperate with people is not based on explicit contracts or I'll do this and you do that. It's based on connection and trust and feeling like we care about the same things. But we're acute. This type of cooperation strategy is vulnerable to defection. And particularly the type of defection involved is hypocrisy. So if we're in a trust based relationship and I can fake trust, trustworthiness, I get all the payoffs of the trust relationship and I pay none of the costs because when the costs come, I take off. And so part of my argument is that humans have become acutely attuned to this problem. And so there's been a kind of evolutionary arms race between getting better at faking commitment and getting better at detecting fakers. And currently, like Woody Allen is at the leading edge of the fakers because <laughs> he Woody Allen, there's this great. So I, I was very influenced by Robert Frank, this Cornell economist, Robert Frank's work on this topic. Right. Um, and he's got a great photo of Woody Allen in um, passions within reason. I think this popular book is called um, where Woody Allen can control these muscles in his forehead that most people can't consciously control. And so he can make this face that is like, genuine contrition or like, you know, I know you think I did something wrong, but I'm really a good guy. And Woody Allen can do that on command, which is why you should always watch your back around that dude. Um, but then also, you know, there's pressure to detect that. And so that's why human beings are super compared to like chimpanzees, we're amazing mind readers, right? We can look at micro expressions and realize that, you know, you're bored or you're just saying that because you think I'm going to like what you're saying and you don't really believe it and and so what i'm arguing is that uh the social the charisma that comes with spontaneity is because humans like humans like people who aren't kicking off signs of cognitive control if i don't see you exerting cognitive control i feel like i can trust the things you're saying and that i really know who you are so I find the the social aspect of this fascinating um, because this is something that I felt about myself, but that I didn't really have the um, terminology for the the way to think about. Where I feel like sometimes in a social interaction, I'm just like I I like it. I feel like I'm vibing with the person or the group. Like I'm funny. I'm into it, and I I like feel great. And I'm like, why can't I? turn that on when I want it because it, it's very frustrating, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, whereas I feel like other people are much better. So Mickey and I were at a somewhat awkward party uh, this last weekend and and these just like random dudes would walk up to us and be like, hey, you know, like, can I join your conversation? And Mickey is so good at like drawing these people out, you know, asking yeah, them questions, yeah. having and and I was just like, I'm going to stare at you awkwardly. I hope that you go away. That was that was my strategy. That's your strategy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in that situation. Yeah, so I wonder whether this is something are there individual differences in this where some people feel like, you know, I really have to be in this kind of like flow state that I can't really control whereas other people are like, oh, this is something I can turn on and off. I mean, what do you think, Mickey? Uh, I think I've got more duh than you. 
Yeah, you do. Mickey Mickey has slightly more dough than you. It's true. Yeah, that is the explanation. <laughs> but it's you know, you can't if you're thinking about turning it on and off, you're fucked, right? You can't as soon as you start thinking about it, it's gone. And so that's that's the problem. And and it's a real problem. Like I when I talk about this to my undergrads, I use the dating example. So um, you know, we've all had this I have a very thinly disguised autobiographical account in the book of um, someone unnamed who goes through a, a long drought in terms of dating um, and then somehow breaks out of it. So so in this case, so I will take the veil of away from the autobiography. So I went through this long drought and um, at a certain point just got out of it because I was working at this restaurant and I was so exhausted by this incredibly long shift that I wasn't trying it. Like I was really just in way just because I was so tired and met this woman at the bar and started talking to her in a completely natural way because I was not, I couldn't, I didn't have the energy to try. And that's what broke me out of the drought. And um, the next day I walked out of my apartment. This is, this will date me. I walked out of my apartment to return a video <laughs> to the video, to the video store. What is that? <laughs> yes. So future generations will have to look this up. Um, but I walk out my door and so I've gone six months without a date. And then suddenly, and walk out my door and walk by these two women who are walking by me and, and they kind of look at me and then they, they turn around about 15 yards on, they turn around, and they go, one of them says, my friend wants to date you. And I'm like, all right, thanks. See ya. <laughs> and I get to the video store and I return the video. And there was this beautiful woman who worked at the video store. And I'd been trying for months to talk to her and she would not even look at me. And I come in and I put the video down and I'm turning to leave. And she's like, Vim Vendors? Are you a Vim Vendors fan? And I'd been running fucking Vim Vendors movies for like months. And she never said anything. And suddenly she's like, oh, you're into Vim Vendors? I love Vim Vendors. What did you watch? And we started talking about the vendors. Next thing I know, we have a date that next night for her to come over and watch a Vin Vendors movie with me. And I remember walking out of the video store and sniffing myself. I'm like, do I just smell like sex? And like, but it wasn't, I had taken a shower. It was, what it was, was that I had actually stopped trying. Like I was relaxed. I was happy. And the thing is, it would have been great for like mid drought me to get that. But you can't, if you're trying to get it, you you can't get it, right? You can't, it's not a switch. And if it were a switch that you could flick on and off, it wouldn't be a very good evolutionary signal. So part of my argument is that it's a kind of hard, it's a hard to fake signal. And that's why people care about it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm convinced by what you're saying, but I must admit, to me at least, there is a real big contrast with, from what you're describing that is valued uh, in Chinese culture. And I, I also think in, in, in Western culture as well. Um, but the contrast is with the, the opposite notion, which I think is also strongly held in Western culture, or certainly in, in, in Protestant cultures, which is this notion of hard work, this notion of effort, of trying. Uh, so I study self-control a lot. And a lot of self-control, at least from my perspective, is about, you know, how much effort are you applying? How hard are you working? And in fact, you know, we place value on how much work you do. Uh, so 
how do how do we like reconcile these the, the, the these these two things? You know, on the one hand, the desire for spontaneity, spontaneity is like that's what the true you is, but at the same time, we're in this culture where it's, a lot of it's about self change and, and self improvement. So you effortfully strive for things. You set goals for yourself. You know, we're, we're, we're in January here, mid-January. Uh, many people are about to give up on the New, Year, New Year's resolutions, um, but they set them, right? And effortfully are trying to approach them. Uh, and that seems just the, 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 the approach itself seems to be valued. So how, yeah, how do we reconcile these two things? Well, they're both, they're obviously both valuable. There's a reason we have a prefrontal cortex, right? Super expensive part of the brain. It wouldn't be there if it wasn't doing something really useful. So it's not, so the, the, I think the right way to understand my argument about spontaneity and the importance of it is that it's a corrective to an exclusive emphasis on trying. There are lots of things that you can't do without trying. And in fact, certain types of spontaneity can't be achieved without trying, right? So athletic spontaneity, if I just pick up a tennis racket and try to be spontaneous, I'm going to be a, an idiot, right? So, so I'm a ten I took up tennis as an adult. I've been playing about three years or so. And it's an interesting case example in the, the dynamic between trying and not trying. So you can't get good without trying. And you can't get good without conscious attention to technique. And so I'm constantly like thinking about my wrist and am I setting up right? And am I doing the unit turn? I've got all these different metaphors for what I should be doing. It should be like a chain. It should be. Um, and so I'm thinking, but the goal was to, to build that into my hot cognition so that I can get to a point where I'm, I'm not thinking about it anymore. Um, so there's, there's, trying that leads to not trying there's also trying that is what what the acc and the you know various parts of prefrontal cortex are for which is stopping bad things from happening and doing some other motor program or behavioral program um, so we value self-control and we value people who are able to recognize that their spontaneous way of being is bad and change it the, the problem is when you only you only look at one of those sides of things. So, yeah, I think the wrong way to take my project is to say we should all become the dude. Um, you know, white Russian. That's wait, hold on, hold on. Wait <laughs> a second. Slow down there. The wrong message of your book is that we should all become the dude. I mean, I thought, what? The dude has a kind of charisma because he's reached this state. But I don't want to live in that guy's apartment or drink white Russians all the time or sit around in a bathrobe. So we value human beings value trying as well. We, and we value people who are able to recognize user cold cognition to recognize that their spontaneous patterns are bad and to interrupt those patterns and replace them with newly trained up different patterns. That's what human, you know, that's what our thing is as a species is this ability to do this. Um, so it's not to denigrate that it's just to recognize that, um, you know, with physical skills, we, we do need to reach this point where they get internalized and we can do them automatically. Um, and I think the other important thing is to realize that when you, you face a barrier, 
the right response is not necessarily to try harder. So I find this with my students, like if they're having trouble writing a paper, they'll pull an all-nighter. So let's try harder. And actually what they probably should do is just stop and go for a walk or go smoke a joint <laughs> or do something different. Um, go on sabbatical. Go on or go on, if you're a senior colleague who yeah, has that luxury, you can go on sabbatical. But this is, so um, it's important to also recognize the power of our hot systems and our unconscious systems. And I think one of the worries, one of the concerns I have about our trying culture is that we're constantly taking in information. So like, you know, Twitter and Facebook and you're checking your email. And as long as you're taking in information in that way, you're not letting your unconscious communicate with you. And it's possible that your unconscious has figured out some super useful shit. <laughs> it's like, hey, hey, Mickey, I'll tell you about this. But you're pissed off about these assholes on Twitter. And so you can't hear it because you're involved in a Twitter fight. And so I think part of the message is that we need to build in downtime into our lives where we're disengaged from technology, we're disengaged from reading the news online. And we actually just like, you know, look out the window at the view or we go for a walk or we do something because that allows our unconscious to communicate to us things it's figured out. And I think it's, I, I think new, you know, the, the smartphone and new technologies have really crowded out that space for our, for us. And Amen, I, brother. I love that. That's like, I, I feel I want to like, I have a, like a, to just like clink your kinkle glass with the UL because uh, that was awesome. That was great. So, Here's um, one thing that's kind of come up for me uh, repeatedly as you've talked about this way of thinking, and uh, I'm prepared to uh, you know, accept that this may just be a misconception on my part, but I think stereotypically, when you think about like education in the East versus the West, you think of like Western, like let's say math instruction being like, play with these blocks, discover for yourself, just yeah. like, you know, experience math. And whereas Chinese kids are like, you're going to grind out, you know, these from <laughs> 12 hours a day. Yeah. Right. So it really kind yeah. of flies in the face. I feel like of what you're saying of these like different cultural approaches. So is that, am, am I just wrong or is there. You're, you're, you have, you have the wrong comparison case. So my comparison case is this ancient Chinese philosophical view that became popular in some ways, but bears very little resemblance to modern China. Um, so modern, modern China is about as non Uwe as a human being could imagine. <laughs> and, and the modern Chinese educational strategy of driving kids to be doing things, you know, 20 hours a day and they're going to school all day and then they do lessons, music and sports is about as anti Uwe as you can get. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm conscious of time, Ted. And uh, uh, so we're running out of time. And uh, so before we, you know, kind of wrap up and let you go, um, I want to switch gears a tiny bit. Uh, and just because I'm so curious uh, about your, the book that you're, I guess, writing now um, on intoxication. And correct me if I'm wrong, you are arguing that intoxication is a good thing and, in fact, uh, instrumental in culture. 
so can you kind of, again, I know you're just still thinking about this and working through it, but uh, as a parting message to our, to our listeners, um, why, why, why is that? Why is intoxication good? Yeah. So the, the standard scientific theories of intoxication view it as like, so I call it the porn and Twinkie theory. So it's like porn or Twinkies. It's an, it's an evolutionary mistake. We have these endogenous reward systems that were designed by evolution to reward us for doing useful things. And then clever humans figured out a way to, to hack the system. So that's the standard theory about why we drink or take drugs. Um, I think that's that can't be right for a variety of reasons. So um, at the individual genetic selection level, there are solutions to the problem of parasit- parasitizing our reward network. So um, the Asian flushing gene, so this gene that you find in East Asia where you drink a little bit and you get nauseous and you turn red and you don't like it. Um, that evolved a long time ago, probably 3,000 years ago. <clears throat> if alcohol were really just this kind of net negative byproduct, you'd expect that gene to spread a little bit more <laughs> than it has. And it's remained pretty concentrated in East Asia. And actually, structurally analogous um, genes have evolved independently in other parts of the world. Ashkenazi Jews have a version of it. Um, and it remains, really? ge- yeah, it remains geographically constrained. Um, so that's pu- that's puzzling if alcohol is just a byproduct. <clears throat> you also, from a cultural evolutionary uh, perspective, if it were a bad negative byproduct, you would think that cultures that forbade intoxicants would very quickly take over the world because they should be just, because alcohol is super dangerous. <laughs> It's terrible, actually. It's you know, it's it's it leads to it can. It's very addictive. It's got, if nothing else, it's um, it's got all these negative consequences on behavioral um, amount of hours you can work, and um, it should cultures that forbid it should should immediately take over the world, and yet they have it. They've done pretty well. So Islam and Islam's got a kind of mixed record on on forbidding alcohol. But the Mormons do it pretty um, pretty effectively. A lot of a lot of the groups that forbid alcohol religiously, I'm going to argue, replace it with other forms of intoxication. And so, if you look at like Pentecostals, um, you can't drink alcohol, but you get together in these groups and you get infused with the Holy Spirit and you start speaking in tongues. And it's, I think it's basically just a another route to getting into the same state. Um, and so intoxication seems central to human civilized life. And so the question is why? And I think there's a lot of adaptive reasons. So it, um, at the individual level, there's good evidence. You know, there's an ancient cross-cultural theme that links intoxication to creativity. So poets, you know, um, inspired by wine. And there's good empirical evidence that we we're better at thinking laterally and you know, doing we're better at tasks like the kind of uh, remote associate test. That things that you can't again, like a kind of way, you can't attack them directly. You need to just relax and see the connections. We're better at those tasks when we're about 0.08 alcohol level. Um, so it it ramps up individual creativity. It also, my other argument is that with this trust issue, 
you know, we've got this this uh, arms race between fakers and and faker detectors. And cultures have an interest in weighing in on the side of the cheater detectors. We want to we want to help them out and put the thumb on the scale in their favor. And alcohol is one way to do that. So you put a bunch of people together, you downregulate the prefrontal cortices, and you get a better read of whether or not they really believe in this religion that we claim to believe in, or they really are going to fight next to me when we tomorrow go out to battle. Um, so it's a, it's a tool for enhancing social trust that has got very specific physiological effects that allow us to, to get past this, this, this tension of how do we know that people who claim to be trustworthy are really trustworthy. So are you saying, Ted, that, uh, because we drink sometimes heavily on this podcast, we are more trustworthy and better people? Yes, and you're more creative. So you ask better questions, conversation. This is, you know, um, we at UBC, you know, we had this big grant on the evolution of religion. Um, I'm convinced that that grant happened only because we got a pub on campus. So it it previously was the case that there was no place to drink. Sorry, my dog needs to go out. Go ahead. There was no place to drink after work. Um, and then this Mahoney's, this pub opened on campus right near the bus loop. So we could all, it was easy to go to on a Friday when you're leaving campus. And so we started meeting there. Um, you know, me and Joe Henrik and our Norn Zion and Steve Heine. And there's something about putting people together in an environment where you then add alcohol that allows conversations to be more free people speak their minds more. People are less self-conscious about saying, hey, what about, you know, what if we did this? And this is a universal feature of human communal creativity that it gets fueled by intoxicants that down... Well, you've heard it here first. You've heard it here first. uh, (laughs) Drinking (laughs) is is a boon to everything uh, without qualification, I think. So, uh, there's some qualification. I, you know, <laughs> so uh, Ted, we are running out of time. So I just want to, you know, thank you for, for, you know, spending so much time with us. And I feel like I've learned a lot in this conversation and, um, I hope our listeners feel the same way. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. And, and next time it'll have to be live and in person in our studio in Toronto.